Before we get to today's episode, some news. K-pop is going on hiatus, but just for the month of March. We're working on an incredible two-month series that will give voice to the many men and women who did their all during the civil rights movement to make this a more perfect union. These heroes are getting on in years, but they haven't stopped in their lifelong quest. No one said it more poignantly than Ambassador Andrew Young when I sat down with him back in January. And then I remembered he used to say that, uh, you know, some of us are not going to make it to 40. He said, but if we make it to 40, we can make it to 100. Well, he didn't make it to 40. So it becomes me almost an obligation for me to keep doing whatever I can do as long as I can do it. And I'll be 87 in another month. And I don't know whether I can make 100 or not, but uh, you can't waste the experience we've had. The series will begin on April 4th, a solemn day for the civil rights movement and America. For on that day in 1968, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. How fitting that we end Black History Month with a rerun of an interview about one of the greatest African Americans in our nation's history. In his epic biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, Yale professor David Blight tells us all about the man who escaped slavery to become one of America's most famous orators and impassioned advocates for freedom. Professor Blight, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be with you. So, um, President Trump, in on February 1st, 2017, in an event in the Roosevelt Room of the White House celebrating Black History Month, here's what he said. Frederick Doug- Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. When you heard the president say that, what mm-hmm. did you think? as the premier biographer of Frederick Douglass? I immediately thought about the dangers of presidential ignorance. But the day that happened, I ha- that week, I just happened to be teaching Douglass's narrative in my course on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I can't recall if I heard about it before I went to the lecture or after, but one of my teaching assistants, teaching his section, quickly texted me or emailed me and said, David, my class blew up. He said he played this in his class, and he said the entire section of 15 students blurted out, oh, my God, he doesn't know who he was. (laughs) (laughs) And I used that line, and I wrote an op-ed piece that the New York Times published shortly after that about the dangers of presidential ignorance. Yeah, someone must have put that... Uh, lying in front of him and said, you mentioned Douglas, uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, I mean, no one's ever f- asked him or found out, I guess, does he actually not know who he was? Uh, but you could only interpret it that way. Otherwise, you simply wouldn't have said something so silly. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, so the pre- the president says, you know, people yeah. are talking about him. He's being yeah. recognized more and more, yeah. I notice. And mm-hmm. one, thing's, one thing people will notice, actually, mm-hmm. uh, right now is your gigantic book <laughs> titled right. Trick Douglas, 
prophet of freedom. Yeah. And maybe the president maybe the president will read it. Wh- why did you feel that it was time mm-hmm. for for Frederick Douglass to get this yeah. treatment? Well, the timing is often uh, luck when you spend this many years on a book. I had written my first book way back uh, out of graduate school on Douglas. It was a much shorter book. It was a kind of a little intellectual history of Douglas. I had then edited both of his first two autobiographies into new editions. I had uh, put out a new edition of The Columbian Order, the book Douglas Discovered as a Slave, and written lots of essays on Douglas, but I had put Douglas out of my life, frankly, until I encountered a private collection owned by Walter Evans in Savannah, Georgia, which presented, when it was presented to me about 10 years ago, I realized oh my God, I'm going to have to try a whole new life of Douglas. So that was uh, nine or ten years ago when I chose to do that. However, as time went on, then I was aiming for what is the Douglas Bicentennial. Uh, Ironically, when President Trump made that comment, that was the beginning of the month of the Douglas Bicentennial. (laughs) He was born 200 years earlier, which perhaps somebody in the White House may have known. Um, So... I'm lucky to have this come out at a time when there's a lot of consciousness of Douglas, but it isn't just because of this anniversary. It is because Douglas's life and thought, especially as a thinker, is now the subject of people in all sorts of disciplines, uh, from political science to law professors who are studying him as a legal thinker to novelist. Douglas is appearing now as a character in all sorts of fiction, mm-hmm. world fiction. Novels by Indian writers, African writers, American writers, Irish writers. Colin McCann wrote an entire novella about Douglas. Um, Chimamanga Adichie, the famous, important Nigerian writer, makes Douglas's narrative almost a character in the life of her young character named Agwu in the Biafran Civil War. Douglas has been discovered in the last, let's say, 20 to 25 years as this major American figure of the 19th century through which one can see this history of from slavery to freedom. But he's also been discovered, of course, as a writer, as an intellectual, as a thinker. His autobiographies are now widely taught. So, I mean, I'm, I'm putting this book out at this time because it's when I finished it, <laughs> and, which is true of all authors, I think. But right. uh, lucky enough, there's a lot of consciousness about Douglas. Right. Your, your timing could not be more impeccable. And I want, for, for folks who are listening who don't know, they might know the name. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. knows the name Frederick Douglass, but not everyone knows yeah. the story. So who mm-hmm. was he? Where was he born? Mm-hmm. Douglas was born Frederick Bailey uh, at the Horseshoe Bend in the Tuckahoe River in February of 1818. He was probably born in his grandmother Betsy's cabin or house, although we don't know that for sure. He uh, was, of course, born a slave and lived 20 years of his life, his first 20, as a slave on the eastern shore of Maryland and then in Baltimore, which is crucial. If Douglas hadn't been sent to Baltimore for close to 10 years and two occasions in his slave youth, we probably wouldn't know about him. How did he get to Baltimore? He got to Baltimore first because his owner, 
Aaron Anthony had died, um, but he was sent to Baltimore to be the playmate companion of his owner's nephew, um, uh, Hugh Ald's son. Um, and that's his first time in Baltimore. He spends uh, barely a year there, and then he's sent back to the Eastern Shore because Anthony died and all of Anthony's slaves were divided up and uh, propositioned off, some of them south, some of them to other owners. He was then owned by Thomas Ald, uh, who luckily for Douglas sent him back to Baltimore, where Douglas spends the years from about age of 7 to 13, 14 in the streets of Baltimore, an urban place, uh, learning of the trade of caulking, encountering lots of little white boys on the streets who were Irish and German immigrants. Some of them became his, you know, his boyhood friends for a while. Uh, but he also learns his alphabet and, and the power of reading from his mistress, a woman named Sophia Auld. And no one can ever know exactly why someone like Douglas develops a genius with language, as he did. But there are steps along the way when one can see it. Once he, though, had discovered language and reading and then even beginning to learn how to write and then how to collect newspapers and parts of the Bible, uh, he took to words, he took to language as though they were his manna from heaven. So he's doing this even while he's a teenager in Baltimore. He's then sent back to the Eastern Shore, and this is crucial, when he's about 15. And he lives from the age of 15 to 18 uh, as essentially a field hand. Uh, he's, he's during this period sent by his owner to a infamous um, slave breaker or overseer whose name was Edward Covey, with whom he has a famous fight in the autobiographies. Douglas was beaten savagely in these years. Uh, and it must be said that in his years as a slave, 20 years both in rural Eastern Shore, Maryland, and in the city of Baltimore, he saw or experienced about every kind of brutality, both physical and emotional, uh, mental, that a slave could experience. He witnessed many savage beatings, and he experienced on his own body many beatings. And thus, I argue in the book at various times that this experience of 20 years of being a slave, both in mind and body, which he, he talks about eloquently, uh, shaped him. It left in him uh, a kind of scarring and a rage that had to be expended. Now, one of his great um, capacities is that he developed this power with words, both oratorical and in the written page, where he could process this anger. I mean, <laughs> talk about an angry young man. He could process this anger and this rage about his experience as a slave in writing. He could put it on the page, and of course he does it eventually in three autobiographies, 1,200 pages of autobiography, and then he does it in thousands of editorials, thousands of speeches, even in the genre of fiction in one case. Um, so he's, he's the most famous American slave who becomes a very public abolitionist 
and probably the greatest orator of the 19th century. One of the things you write about in the book, and I think you just mentioned it, the the Columbia orator, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that for him was, as you you said, words for him were manna Mm -hmm. from heaven. But that particular, was it a book? Was it a pamphlet? Yeah, it's a book. It's a book. And he Mm -hmm. got it at what age? He gets his Columbian order when he's about 10 or 11. Uh, he found out about it from his white playmates in the streets of Baltimore. They were using it as a school reader. It was the second largest selling school reader for children in the United States next to the McGuffey Reader. Uh, it went through 27 editions. I only learned this because I added a new edition <laughs> of it. And it even was published in a Maryland edition, even in a slave state. But the book was compiled in 1797 by a New England teacher uh, who was originally from Connecticut uh, who opened uh, some of the first public schools in Boston. He put together this reader for children that was primarily orations and writings from both classical orators and the Enlightenment. And in the book, there are many, many passages that are very openly anti-slavery. His name was Caleb Bingham, who compiled the book. He even had in the book six or seven dialogues, fictional dialogues. Uh, And one of those dialogues that Douglas especially remembered reading as a kid was a dialogue between a master and a slave where the slave convinces the master to free him, you know, by, by logic. (laughs) And Douglas loved this book. He bought his own copy basically by bartering for it. I was going to say, when I read the fact that he bought his own, I thought, how on earth was a slave child able to buy a book and not be arrested, killed? How is that possible? Well, he first started trading uh, Miss Sophia. That was his mistress. He first started trading her warm loaves of bread for spelling lessons and reading lessons from the white kids. Now, talk about, you know... Uh, and these and, were immigrant and, kids. Oh, yes. These are Irish, German kids whose parents were off the boat, so to speak. And Baltimore, by the way, was this teeming, growing, huge ocean port city where it had... by When Douglas is there, say, in his teenage years, Baltimore had over 130, 140,000 people. It was a very big port city. It had some seventeen or 18,000 free blacks and about three or 4,000 slaves. So the slave population was by far the smaller part of the black population. So he's now mingling in a free black community, especially by his teenage years. He goes to churches. This is where he would have met Anna Murray, his first wife. He's associating with all these free blacks who live a very, you know, restricted life, but they're free. And they have jobs of various kinds. He gets a job. Uh, Of course, he has to give almost all the money to his owner, working in the docks, doing all kinds of jobs, eventually even learning the skill of a caulker. But he buys the Columbian Order at a bookstore on Thames Street in Fells Point, Baltimore, with a little bit of money he'd been allowed to keep from this job. And he also, um, he just loved this book. He, he writes about it in the autobiographies as though it was the most precious thing he owned. And when he escaped from slavery at age 20, in August of 1838, 
He was disguised in a sailor's outfit with a big brimmed hat, you know, black cravat, sash. In one pocket, he had a little bit of money that Anna had given him, and the other pocket was the Columbian Order. He never parted with that Never book. parted with it, and at Cedar Hill today, the National Park site, Douglas's house in Anacostia in Washington, they have his original copy. Wow. Which I got to hold once with white gloves on. It's one of the most important things I've ever held in my hands. Uh, he obviously kept that book as a keepsake forever. Uh, I put it back in print uh, in, eight, in 1997 uh, on its 200th anniversary, so it is available at least for people to use and read. It, it's, it's a reader for children and hmm. young people to inspire them about ideas of, believe it or not, liberty, freedom, <laughs> equality. And here's this kid, age 12, 13, 14, reading it also. And this is important. The first 20 pages of it are an introduction to oratory. How to deliver an oration. How you position your arms. How you gesture. How you modulate your voice. It's all about the technique of oratory. And in one of Douglas's stints on the Eastern Shore, uh, after his year with, with the brutal Edward Covey, he's sent to a farm owned by a man named Freeland. He didn't make that up. Uh, he spends nearly a year there, and he had what he called a band of brothers. They were a group of five, six, seven slave youths, most of them a bit older than him. He would have been about 17, 18 at this point. He ran what he called a Sabbath school. He would take these guys into the woods on a Sunday, and they would read from the Bible or practice from the Columbian Order. Uh, imagine a scene of this young 17, 18-year-old, you know, Fred Bailey with his band of brothers who were, as far as we can tell, probably not literate, but he would teach them oratory from the Columbian mm. orator. So the idea of that Douglas just came out of slavery, you know, oh, he was a great orator. No, he'd actually practiced, <laughs> even in slavery. And he still had to practice, God knows. Nobody comes out of the womb as an orator. Are those the same band of brothers that he planned that initial escape yes, that was thwarted? exactly. It's the same group. The Harris brothers uh, were the primary group, Uh one of whom, by the way, will find him some 40-some years later in Washington, which was quite a reunion. Yeah, he planned this escape, which was a pretty crazy plan. because They were going to steal some boats and row up the Chesapeake to Baltimore. Uh, they, they got, got betrayed. They got caught. And he was thrown in jail for two weeks uh, and had every likelihood of being sold south by his owner. But one of the lucky breaks, he had several good lucky breaks in his life was that Thomas Ald said, okay, I'll send you back to Baltimore, promised him, according to Douglas, they would free him on his 21st birthday if he had good behavior. Uh, but Douglas didn't wait for that. He escaped at the age of 20. Uh, he probably didn't believe Ald would make good on the promise. And Anna, you mentioned, yes. his, his first wife, when he escaped, right. had he already... He, had he already... Married Anna? No. No, they were it was fiancés, I guess the formal term. No, he had not. Uh, he had met her, we don't qu quite know perfectly where, probably in a church. There was even a, a, a free black debating society that he got involved with that, that likely met at a church. Uh, no, he knows Anna for probably his last two years in Baltimore. 
So they were already, if you will, young lovers, probably. But when he escaped, she was very much part of the planning. Uh, she provided him a little bit of cash. The family lore was that she sold a feather bed. Right, because she owned a couple money. of feather beds. She owned some. She owned some possessions. She was a domestic worker in a white people's house. She had a, for her circumstances, a, a fairly good gig, if you want. But he escapes thirty-eight hours or so, three ferry boats and three trains to New York City. And came ashore at the base of Chambers Street. Within 48 hours when he felt safe, he got a letter off to Baltimore. Anna couldn't read. We're not, it's not clear who he wrote the letter to, but whoever he wrote the letter to immediately told Anna he had her bags packed, and she risked her life, without question, um, to follow him. And she would follow him, well the next 44 years of their lives. And when she arrived in New York, right. it wasn't it it was that night yeah. that they got married. They did. They got immediately married in the parlor of David Ruggles's home, which was on Lisbonard Street in Lower Manhattan. Uh, and they were married by James Pennington, who was himself, he became a Presbyterian minister, was himself a fugitive slave from the Eastern Shore. And uh, then they immediately they had they had a chest he had a chest he carried, um, or that uh, Ruggles probably gave him. Uh, they immediately went over to the uh, East River and took a ferry or a boat up to New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was known to be, or he was told, was a safe enclave for fugitive slaves. And indeed it was. Um, so here's this married couple with nothing, one a, former, one a slave, one free, in New Bedford, where they will live for three years. And he'll do all kinds of odd jobs. Uh, he'll work on the docks. He'll carry oil, whale oil casks. Uh, he did every kind of odd job you could do. But he also became a preacher at the local AME Zion Church, probably in his second year there, but at least for two years. He's 21 and 22 years old. Douglas became a fairly regular preacher on Sunday mornings where he learned to preach from the text, whatever the liturgy was that week. And that is where he was actually discovered. Ah, you anticipated because I sorry. was about to ask. So <laughs> no, go ahead. When, was he, when was he discovered? What, put, it, what yeah. put him on the map for and put him on the map for the abolition community? Right, exactly. He's discovered in the winter of 1840-41 by a Garrisonian. Uh, meaning a follower uh, uh, of William Lloyd Garrison's uh, Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, which at that point uh, in 1840-41 was the most prominent, most important abolition society in the United States. Uh, he was just discovered one day giving a sermon. And uh, this person went back to Boston and said, there's this amazing young black <laughs> you know, preacher who was a former slave. We got to check him out. They checked him out, and they invited him the next summer to a big uh, anti-slavery gathering on Nantucket Island, and he took the boat, ferry boat, with the Garrisonians and Garrison himself in August of 41 out to Nantucket where he first spoke publicly to white people in the Athenaeum, that beautiful library that is still there in Nantucket. That becomes his celebrated first public speech, and his first public speeches were just as he was always asked. He was told, tell your story, and he would. 
Uh, he did tell us, he says, you know, that he quaked in his shoes that first time. He was very insecure and uneasy. Again, he's only he's 23 at the time he gives this speech. But they immediately hired him, the Garrisonians. The Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society hired him for meager wages. He gave up whatever he was working at in New Bedford and went out on the circuit uh, across New England first and then all across the northern states for the next three and a half years from 1841 through 44 uh, as an itinerant lecturer. And essentially what he did in these first years is he told his stories. And they're the stories we find him then writing up in the narrative, the first autobiography that's published in 1845. And he did one other thing in these speeches, um, which became one of his classic speeches. He started a variation of a speech that he called the slaveholder's sermon. What he would do is he would break into mimicking a slaveholding preacher. Slaves, be true to your masters, and so on. He'd quote those parts of the Bible that are pro-slavery. And then he would stomp around the stage sometimes in a, in a southern accent. He was, he was a great mimic. And he would deliver a sermon as though it's a sermon being given to slaves in the South by a white preacher, and audiences loved it. But sometimes the audiences would say, Fred, do the sermon. And, <laughs> and he'd stop and he'd break into the slaveholder sermon which became a very popular sort of performance. That's what these were. Uh, and this is where he's, you know, cutting his teeth and developing his chops and honing his oratorical skills. Because in this three to four years, he became very adept at getting up on an altar in a church or, for that matter, a platform in an outdoor park, which is where they often performed, or any dwelling that would have them. And he would just hold forth about his own experiences. And, of course, his experiences now for people were authentic. They were hearing from a real former slave. And that got to be a little troubling. You know, Fred, tell your story. Fred, tell your story. Not troubling for, for Douglas. Yeah, for Douglas. Uh, he got a little tired of that. And it becomes later a real contention between him and Garrison himself and the Garrisonians. Because as he grows a little older, still only in his 20s, uh, he, he, that wears him out. He wants to deal with bigger issues. He wants to be a voice of something larger. And eventually he wants to be a voice of, of big political questions. But, but in the middle of this story in the 1840s, he publishes this narrative in the spring, summer of 1845 and then took it to England. He sailed to England in August of 1845, planning maybe to stay two or three months. He stayed 18 months, and it was a transformative experience. He spent four months in Ireland, uh, four or five months in Scotland, and he actually loved Scotland. He arrived there uh, in the midst of, of a Scottish ecclesiastical warfare. They were having one of their religious fights over what was called send back the money, which meant the, the Church of Scotland, the official Church of Scotland, to raise money, had gone into the American South and raised money from slaveholders. And so those opposing doing this, the abolitionist community in Scotland, launched this campaign called send back the money. Mm -hmm. Douglas arrived right in the midst of this. He has this slaveholder's sermon already ready to deliver. 
he fit in perfectly. Mm. They wrote poems about him in Scotland. They wrote songs about him in Scotland. They adopted him. And then he spends another almost full year, mostly in Britain, but always back and forth to Scotland, where he made dozens of British anti-slavery friends. He met the entire British reform community. He he experienced some racism in England, but nothing like what he experienced in the U.S. Nothing like it. Let me pull you back a second. Sure. Because you've said a couple of times now that Frederick Douglass was born Fred Bailey. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So. Changed his name. Where? Yeah. He changed his name. <laughs> Why did he change his name? Right. That was something actually that was common yeah. among was. slaves who uh, escaped to the north. They right. changed their names. He, uh, he changed his name. The first night he spent in New Bedford, Massachusetts, when he and Anna make it to New Bedford, they had been given some instructions by David Ruggles in New York. This is what we call the Underground Railroad. Um, Go to this man named Mr. Freeman. No, Johnson, excuse me, Mr. Johnson. Lots of ex-slaves named themselves very common names. Freeman, Johnson, so on. And in the home of this Mr. Johnson, who had become a, f- a fairly, I, mean, I wouldn't say prosperous, but a citizen of New Bedford, owned his own home, he sat at their uh, kitchen table. And Mr. Johnson had just been reading um, Charles Dickens's, I'm sorry, Sir Walter Scott's, excuse me. Douglas became a big fan of Dickens later. Mm. But he had just been reading Sir Walter Scott's epic poem, Lady of the Lake. And in it, he suggested to Douglas, there's this really heroic character named Douglas. And Douglas said, oh, really? How's it spelled? With one S. And Douglas said, all right, that's my name, but I'm going to give it an extra S for distinction. He chooses this name of a hero in a Scott epic poem as his new name. And seriously, one of the first things he wanted to see when he got to Edinburgh was the Sir Walter Scott Monument. And mm. if anyone's ever been to Edinburgh, it's this massive monument right in the center of the city. You cannot miss it. It was unveiled like uh, two years before Douglas arrived there. He took his name from a Scott poem. So he became Frederick Douglass the rest of his life. Uh, why did he abandon the name? Part of it might have been identity and security, as many fugitive slaves right. did. Part of it was that he just wanted to own something that had not been a slave name. <laughs> so he, so he's big in the abolition movement. Mm-hmm. What some people might not know is that he was big in the suffrage movement. Oh, yeah. Oh, he yeah. was a big proponent of oh, yeah. women's, women's equality. How did he get looped in into yeah. that movement? Well, he gets looped into the women's rights movement even before the famous Seneca Falls gathering in 1848. He had been embracing uh, the fledgling women's suffrage movement in the 1840s. But by 1848, he lives, he had just moved in 1847 out to Rochester, New York, which isn't very far from Seneca Falls. Um, And when Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others called this women's rights convention, Douglas was front and center. He went. He didn't go with Anna because Anna almost never traveled with him. They had five children at home, which was Anna's job. Um, he went there with Amy Post, who uh, were Amy and Isaac Post, who were Quakers, white Quakers in Rochester, who became dear friends of his. 
He went with her. And he spoke. He was the only male speaker at the Seneca Falls Convention, and certainly the only black male speaker, the only black person there. And he spoke vehemently for, for the right of, uh, of suffrage. He signed the famous Seneca Falls uh, Convention resolutions, the Declaration of Rights, and he changed the masthead on his brand-new newspaper called the North Star to uh, Writers of No Sex or Color. So his embrace of women's rights is very real. It's a very complicated, in some ways, messy story for two reasons. Uh, he's very much a public, uh, we'd, we'd call him feminist today, in support of women's liberty, women's rights, women's economic rights, women's political rights. But of course, his private life, uh, in his private life, uh, by both necessity and choice, he was quite a patriarch. Patriarch, first in the sense of provider for this huge family, and eventually, over time, four surviving adult children and 21 grandchildren. Wow. And in a marriage that was, uh, look, uh, some, one biographer called it misfitted, which may not be the fair way to put it. Others have just called it complex and complicated. He's married all those years to Anna, who remained illiterate, the most famous and important African-American of letters in the world. Actually, the most famous black man in the world is married to an illiterate woman with whom he could not share this life, this world of literature, language, ideas in the way that he had wished. Uh, so there is that other side of him. On the other hand, his daughter, his only daughter, Rosetta, he actually tried to get a, the best possible education for Rosetta. They even he paid private tutors for Rosetta. Mm. She went to schooling that her brothers never had. Uh, that's a bit of a tragedy because uh, Rosetta got herself caught up in a very bad marriage and had six children over you know ten years and never became. I mean, a woman becoming a professional at anything was rare in the nineteenth century. Yeah, but Rosetta wanted to be a teacher, and for a while was. Um, but that didn't work out. So there's this, there's this private side of Douglas, many elements to that. But the public side, he was in every way a supporter of women's rights. However, as you know, he had a terrible falling out. I was going to say, there was a schism. <laughs> there there Indeed, is a huge schism. schism. What was it about? Yeah, the schism occurs by, at the time of the 15th Amendment. Uh, in 1869, 1870. This is after the Civil War. It's only you know four or five years after emancipation and the war. But the 14th Amendment, which had been voted out of Congress in 1866 and becomes law in 67, uh, itself had had black male suffrage in it as one of the provisions. In the 14th Amendment, for the first time, the word male appears in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, that was for black male suffrage, without question. In the 15th Amendment, which is the Voting Rights Amendment, black men were given the right to vote, although, of course, the great flaws of the 15th Amendment were not only that women were not in it, but it, it left wide open the possibilities of all kinds of, of tests uh, for the right to vote, from poll taxes to grandfather clauses and all the rest. But by this time, this, this is through the entire war era, the leadership of the American women's rights movement, not just Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, many others, 
um, had kind of folded their tents because the great, the great question was the war and emancipation. That was, a re- that was one revolution at a time was kind of the attitude. And it was a massive revolution. But now that the war was over and the Reconstruction Amendments are passing and the Reconstruction Acts are passing and the government is now so involved in trying to remake society, the leadership of women's rights, not all of it, much of it, said, we're not going to wait any longer. We want to be in this. And Douglas had a terrible falling out with Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in particular, who were very bitter. And he argued, as so many other people argued, that if you put women's su- – and there's no question about this. If you had put women's suffrage into the 15th Amendment, it never passes. It had no chance. And he argued that. Douglas argued that. He said, I'm afraid you have to wait longer because otherwise nothing's going to happen. Anthony and Stanton weren't ready for that, and they attacked back. And they attacked often in some brutally racist language and aimed partly at Douglas, but especially just aimed at black men. They said if ignorant, in effect, they said over and over, if ignorant black men can go vote, educated white women like us ought to have the right to vote. Now, in pure logic, of course, they're right. But uh, this caused a terrible schism, Mm -hmm. not just with Douglas, but with a whole lot of other abolitionists who said, now, you know, look, this is partly the art of the possible. And uh, that was his position. And I have to say, Douglas took this on the chin from especially Susan, or excuse me, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who said some brutally racist stuff. Yeah. He took it on the chin. He did not really attack them back. <sighs> if you like, in common terms, he sort of sucked it up and said, well, we'll deal with this later. And they did, and he had pretty much a makeup with both of them over time. Not, not entirely, especially with Susan Anthony. Uh, but it was a bitter breakup when they had it in an ugly affair that happens in 1869-70. He's going to live all the way to the 1890s, and so are Stanton and Anthony. And they lived long enough to write their massive history of women's suffrage uh, in which they were not kind to uh, people like Douglas, abolitionists, male abolitionists like Douglas, so it's it's a you know it's a it's a roller coaster <laughs> history of his relationship with women's rights. But he never you know you could say he backed away from women's suffrage because he wanted to get the Fifteenth Amendment passed, and he did. Let's but there fa- really was no other choice. Let's fast forward to our present day, sure, uh, because I would love to get your thoughts on what Douglas might make of President Trump and his and his rhetoric. Um, I'm thinking specifically of all the things that he has said, specifically about the president's reaction to Charlottesville. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Douglas would probably, and of course I'm guessing here, but I have had to think about this a few times. <laughs> Douglas would probably have had two kinds of reaction to that. This is my guess from knowing his life and manner and work. On the one hand, he'd have had a deeply moral reaction that would have been, he would have been appalled, he would have been angry, he would have condemned the way President Trump uh, 
embraced, at least to an extent, the far right, you know, the alt right, and all that. Uh, in his own time, what Douglas did with this kind of rhetoric or action after the Civil War, he just associated it with pro slavery. Douglas would say, the Democratic Party of the 1880s, or the lynchers, or the uh, Supreme Court justices turning around the constitutional amendments, like in the civil rights case of 1883, he would say it's just pro-slavery ideology rising again. That's what Douglas said then. He would have said it's just, it's all the latent white supremacy that's it's just there and needs to be tapped. But, it, but here's my guess, too. And he'd have been vehement about that. Would that we had him here. Uh, his other reaction might have been to process it in a kind of satire. Hmm. He might have mimicked Trump. He might have, hey, he might have reverted to the old slaveholder's sermon right. and turned it into a political, he might have mimicked it. He did that sometimes. Would that we'd been treated, not to Saturday Night Live about Trump on Charlottesville and other issues of race, but to a Frederick Douglass processing this through a sort of brutal satire of a president of the United States willing to divide us so bitterly uh, over race in order to keep his base satisfied. Uh, and Douglas, especially by the war years and the last third of his life, had come to understand the art of political rhetoric. Uh, and I would, I would love to have seen, I mean, this is all counter-historical, but I'd love to see Douglas choose to take on Trump's manner, his language, his ignorance in a kind of satire, savage satire that Douglas was brilliant at. And what do you think <laughs> what, what do you think he would have uh, Frederick Douglass would have said if he had heard Chief of Staff John Kelly who said yeah. Yeah. in an interview that no the Civil War wasn't about wasn't about uh -huh. slavery. Uh -huh. Oh god. Douglas would have pilloried that up one side and down the other, and he probably would have reminded Kelly or the country that, you know, hundreds of thousands of northern soldiers didn't go with their states. They went with the federal government. They went with the United States. They went with the Union, and almost 200,000 African Americans weren't fighting for their states. They were fighting for a remaking of the United States. So this notion that everybody went with their state was just nonsense, you know. Uh, and, and the argument about states' rights versus slavery is the oldest, endless, useless argument we have about <laughs> the Civil War. The trouble with Douglas, though, and, and your question is wonderful, Jonathan, because Douglas has become almost a Lincoln in the sense that everyone wants to appropriate him now, left and right. Uh, to their causes. You can get Douglas on your side. Uh, and frankly, in recent times, it's been the American conservative right, especially the libertarian right, um, that has appropriated Douglas because he was a Republican of a very different kind. Right. The original Republican Party definitely was a Republican. He was a Republican the rest of his life after the election of 1860. He campaigned for every presidential candidate from 1864 to, through 1892, the last presidential that he was alive, uh, sure. But the thing the right in America appropriates about Douglas, and this is absolutely fascinating, is they pick up his rhetoric of self-reliance, which is all over the place in Douglas's uh, pre- and post-war rhetoric and thought. 
What, what they never stopped to, to do are two things. They never stopped to realize, because they don't know the history, is that almost all black leaders preached a certain degree of self-reliance. This, we're talking about the 19th century here. Um, they weren't all Booker T. Washington, but almost everybody had to preach some degree of self-reliance, self-development, self-community creation. The other thing that ignores, of course, is his entire radical abolitionist life. <laughs> uh, which, which was demanding, demanding, demanding activist, interventionist government, not limited government. But we live in this world now where, you know, if you want, if, uh, where the right needs black voices for this idea of limited government and self-reliance, and they can go back and find that with Douglas. They just take it completely out of context. You know, um, in this time when you know people are losing their minds, they're they're losing um, hope right. in in America. They hear "Make America Great Again" and they think, "For whom?" Yeah. Um, they feel that the country. I think that and, slogan frightens some people. Right, and the sort of the progressive trajectory that a lot of people thought the nation was on is completely been yeah. upended, and people are feeling, in some ways. Hopeless yeah. that yeah. this is the most terrible time that we've we've ever been in, and that we will forever be lost mm-hmm. on our way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reading, and I'm st- I am still reading um, <laughs> the book. <laughs> it is it is big, but it is in keeping with a, a, a genre that I've been reading. I read the um, biography of Harriet Tubman. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. then found myself reading Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Sure, and sure. as horrific as the the stories, and hopeful, yeah. um, particularly on Harriet Tubman's case, and with Frederick Douglass, is that I'm. Discovering through reading these histories that things things are bad. They can they have been worse. Yes, and that the other big lesson that I'm getting out of this is Mm -hmm. that we do get through to the other side. It's just a a matter. It's just a matter of time and patience. This is a profound question, of course. In your profession, it's kind of part of every discussion in the media now. The important thing to do with Douglas is to pick your place in his life. I mean, go back to 1850, go back to 1845, go back to 1858, and ask how in the world did he sustain hope in America? Really? Uh, how did his people sustain hope? How did black leaders generally sustain hope? Uh, in my first book on Douglas way back in 1880. <laughs> Wait, I was going to say, 18... I can't get out of that century. Yeah, no, 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 no. That might look like it, but no. Uh, In 1989, I have a chapter, it's the pre-war 1850s chapter on Douglas, where I simply called it the sources of hope in Douglas's life and thought. And the reason was that I found him all the time at a a moment in history, let's say a decade in history, when you had no right to assume slavery is going to end in the next 10 years. In my lifetime? No, probably not. But abolitionists had to make the case. They had to find the methods to make the case. They had to find money to make the case. They had to find newspapers. They had to reach people with persuasion. They had to do it through oratory and writing and language. And, you know, Douglas found his hope. Even in times of of great despair, Douglas found his hope, one, in, in faith, 
and in spirituality. No question about that. And I've made the Bible and his his deep rooting in the Old Testament one of the six major themes of the book. But he also found it in politics when he learned the art of politics, the pragmatism that politics takes. He learned that he had to sometimes make allies with people who didn't have exactly the same principles, namely the Republican Party, the early Republican Party. He couldn't decide in the 1850s whether to trust them or not. These people were against the expansion of slavery, but there were a lot of racist Republicans who didn't want black people near their communities, and they didn't really believe in black equality. Well, some did. There was Charles Sumner, and there were others who didn't. But he learns that he's, if you really, really want to stay in America and you want to change this place, it's going to have to happen through politics or you're going to make bedfellows with some people that aren't going to be pleasant. He wasn't always good at this, but he learned how to do it. He learned a certain faith in politics. He actually kind of loved politics. It's just a shame he never really ran for an office. He only held a point of offices. But also he kept a long view. He kept a long view of history, which is not easy for anybody to do. He read a lot of history. He knew that nothing in history changes overnight. It changes incrementally and that there are always, he learns this, does he not, that every revolution has a counter-revolution. And he's an example, a, f- a remarkable example of, there, and we've had some of these in the 20th century from the civil rights era, of a radical reformer who actually lives to see his cause triumph in his 40s, middle of his life. But then he lives another 30 years to see that very, those very triumphs, by and large, betrayed and all but destroyed, all in one lifetime. Revolutions and counter-revolutions. He saw the Civil War and emancipation as the second American Revolution, as the refounding and recreation of the United States, and he actually saw himself as a kind of second founder, among others. But, you know, the first founding didn't last either, and we're still living out some variation of the second founding. We thought the civil rights, the modern civil rights revolution had changed this country forever, and it did. There's no question it did. It has something to do with you and I sitting here talking to each other. It has something to do with the things we teach and the things we write. There's no question. But we're living another counter-revolution against that. Frankly, the Reagan revolution was a counter-revolution, lest we forget, against the civil rights era. Trumpism, whatever we want to define it as, was reaching back. Make America great again? Which part? Where again? Where do we go in the past for that? Which past are you resurrecting here? It's a counter-revolution again against so many, whatever you want to call them, progressive changes in law, in society, in sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, against the Obama presidency. And, you know, to keep heart with this, one has to keep a long view of history. That's not easy to do. It's just not easy to do. And I don't blame people for a certain despair because just look at the cynicism around this Supreme Court appointment and the nomination process. I, you know, I worry about my own students. I mean, what they just voted for the first time, most of them, or they haven't voted yet at all. (laughs) They're watching our institutions just not work. How long can that go on? 
How long can you keep telling them, learn more history, you'll be all right? right. (laughs) Before they say, no, I'm not. (laughs) No, I'm not, Professor. I I, want to go out and uh, I want to go out and knock something down. I want to go out and raise some hell because uh, learning all your history isn't helping me. That's a danger, you know, if if it comes to that. Uh, Well, it it may. It may have in some ways. Uh, Somebody asked me just recently, you know, what would Douglas think of Black Lives Matter and so forth? I even got asked what would Douglas think of the Me Too movement and so on. These things are all way too instrumental and so on. But what, what one does know is Douglas believed in social movements. Agitate, agitate, raise hell, organize, organize, organize. That, that's, that's what he did with his adult life. So sometimes the radical reformer, even when he becomes a political insider, which Douglas did, always has to remember that in action alone, you're keeping hope. You're making some kind of hope. In organization, you're making some kind of hope. In writing, as you do and I do. Uh, uh, being out there in the public airwaves, you're recreating some kind of hope. A good journalist who just reports the news is still creating some kind of hope. It means we have a free press. Um, But we do have institutions in trouble, and frankly, where do we go, where should we go, when we are in situations like this? The one time in our history when our, our system truly broke tore itself to pieces and fought this horrific civil war. Uh, That disunion has a lot to teach us about the kind of slow disunion we may be having now, Uh, slow breakup of institutions. We hope not, but that has a lot to teach us if we bear down on it and look closely. Analogies are never direct, but they are useful. David Blight, professor of American history, director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University, and the author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Post Reports. Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from the Post's newsroom in our newest daily podcast. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington Post. Washington Post.